0: Welcome to Ridgecrest Baptist. We thank you for listening. Now, here is this week's message. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles this morning, your copy of the Holy Scriptures to to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. Colossians 3, 12. While you're finding your your place in the Scriptures, let me uh, thank the choir for that awesome job this morning. I thank all the people who have served uh, through the, the military, the armed forces that are in the family at Ridgecrest. So thank you for your service and providing freedoms to us. The title of this sermon is Be the Church as Family, and it's part two. And I think there'll be a part three next week as we look at verses 15 through 17. But this morning, I want us to look at Colossians 3:12 through 14. But let me introduce this text before I read it to you by just saying a few things. Things And actually, I want to show you a couple of other scriptures on the screens in just a minute. The New Testament teaches the church is a family. And the reason the church is a family is because God is our personal heavenly father. God is not far off. He's he's close by. He's intimate. He's with us here in this room. And I love the concept of the New Testament of calling and God, by the, the way that Jesus did, Jesus used the Aramaic word Abba when he referred oftentimes to God. He, in that word, uh, Abba is a, a word that probably would translate dad. And Abba is a term of respect, but it's a term of endearment. And it, the scholars believe that it actually probably is related to just the easiest form of the way that infants pronounce their father's name, Abba, almost like dad Dada. And it's a beautiful concept that Jesus would say, uh, "Abba, Father." And it's actually reflected in Paul's writings as well. Look at—I hope we have Romans 8:14 through 16. It's on the screen. Uh, it says, "For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You have not received, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but..." You have received a spirit of of uh, adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And so the fundamental truth is that we're not a secular organization. We're not a, a club. We are the family of God and we're blood related, as we said two weeks ago, by the benefits of the cross of Christ, where he shed his blood. His death was necessary for us to be adopted into the family of God, to be reconciled to God. And that's reflected in Colossians chapter one, verse 19 and 20, which says, for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. That is Christ And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So the local church is God's family. And like all families, we have issues. We have people in them. So we are not perfect. All of us are imperfect. And therefore, we need our father to give us some standards of behavior. And that's what we're going to look at for just the next few minutes. Our father has told us how he wants us to interrelate to one another and how he wants us to treat to one another, how he wants us to speak and treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the nature of this text I'm about to read to you. And this sermon sets forth the traits of how God expects us as his as the father of the family to treat one another. And God has told us he makes power available to us. In other words, we're not strong enough in our own strength to act right. We have to ask God and receive from God power from the Holy Spirit that indwells us to actually treat one another better than we naturally would want to treat one another. So having said that, let me read our text to us this morning. And I'm going to stop at verse 14. And then we're going to look at these in critical ways to treat one another. Colossians 3.12 Which is the perfect bond of unity. Allow me uh, to, to bring to memory a couple of key parts from the last sermon on this two weeks ago. First of all, I said the word put on in, or the verb in verse 12 that says to put these things on, put on. That is a word that is in a, in a part of the speech. It's an imperative, meaning it's a command. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion, but it's a command. God, our father in the family, has said, essentially, these are rules. These are the family rules. These are the requirements. So what we're about to talk about is God saying to us, this is how we roll in our family. This is not a choice uh, that we can make, but it's his command. And so it implies also putting on things like you would put on a set of clothes. I trust that you have put some thought and effort into what you were going to Put on this morning to come to church. And so you don't just randomly get up and come to church. Thankfully, we don't do that. But we actually put thought onto putting on clothes. And therefore, that's the word picture of this word in verse 12, which means when we come together, we need to come together with some forethought. We need to have some um, intentional time of preparing in order to meet to be with our brothers and sisters in the church. We can't just, in other words, get up and come to church without preparing, you know, mentally, spiritually, physically preparing for church is vitally important. That's implied in this put on. It talks about we need to think before we act. We don't want to just come in and say whatever the first thing that comes to our mind is, but actually ask The Holy Spirit to begin to guide us, to control us, to relinquish as believers in Christ, control over to the again to the Holy Spirit and to God saying, God, control me, limit uh, what I say and help me to think before I act and also help me to be an encouragement to other people. Help me to be a blessing to other people this morning. That's what it means to put on in verse 12. It doesn't mean to fake it. We said we're not putting on. Like, oh, you just putting on, you know, quit joking around. No, that's not what that means. It means to put on as in, to be intentional about it, to have purpose in what we're uh, coming to church to and how we treat one another. If we have to put something on, then that means it's not natural. It's not automatic. Nobody is telling you to put on hunger. In uh, getting ready for lunch, no it, that comes natural to you, you know, and so what you 're already thinking i can 't wait to put on something on my plate for lunch because that 's automatic. it happens naturally, so the fact that we have to put it on implies that it 's not normal, that it 's not natural, it is supernatural, therefore it requires god 's help, and all these traits are traits that describe not the secular mindset, but a a supernatural mindset, it describes the person of God. What we're looking at in these seven traits are the description of who God is and how He treats you as the Father. He is the perfect example. And that's obviously clearly seen in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we read the Gospels and how He interacted with people He manifested all of these, and there's a lot of passages of Scripture that say this is who God is. For example, if you read one of the great stories that Jesus told, the the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, is about uh, that that prodigal that leaves and, and, and goes away, and he's lost, and his father is compassionately looking for him to return, Daily going out there, and the Lord said in Luke 15. But while the son was, the prodigal son was still a long way off, and he began to come back. His father was looking for him, and his father saw him and had compassion on him. That's a picture of what God did for you. It said when He saw you repent, want to repent from your sins, and sense in, at the point of salvation that you needed a Savior. God ran and embraced you as your heavenly father because He was compassionate. And because he's compassionate to you and to me, we should have a, a, a deep inner sense from our gut, from the lowest you know, point of who we are, that we want to be compassionate toward others. And the traits... That will flow out of this are the same way. So we found we need to be compassionate. And I've even listed on your handout. I hope you have a handout. And it should say that compassion is seeing life through the perspective of somebody else. That's what compassion is. We talked about this two weeks ago. And we said that when we see through the eyes of others. We express sympathy and empathy for them. And so we need to be compassionate people. Because God is compassionate toward us. We also saw that God demands kindness. It's an order. It's an imperative. It's a command. Be ye kind one to another. That's just how I said it to Michael and Forrest. Because Ephesians 4.32 is one of my all-time favorite parental you know, verses. Be ye kind one to another. What does it mean to be kind? It means to be nice. So let's be nice. And we are nice. Keep being nice. Thank you for being nice. Y'all are a super friendly church. That's great. We need to be that way. People come and say, uh, like the Timmons I said, they're like, y'all, this is such a, a nice and kind and friendly church. That is critical if we're going to see new members and we, into our family. And that's what we want because that's what God's will is for Ridgecrest is to grow. So be nice, be kind, and therefore we'll be like Jesus. Jesus was a, he was a friendly person. And we should be friendly too. And I want to remind you, uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5 is a verse. Uh, I'm not sure if it's on the screen. Yeah, it's one of the great verses that we could probably commit to memory. Titus 3, 4 and 5. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, talking about the Lord, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, which is compassion by the washing of of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. In particular, I want to point out the key words of kindness and mercy, which is very similar to compassion. But when the kindness of God was experienced by us, we got saved because God was kind to us. Therefore, we should have a motivation to be thinking about how we can be Christ-like to others and be kind to others our salvation drives us to be like God it drives us to be both compassionate and kind but it also drives us to be humble people people of humility and that's where we're going to pick up with item with the third trait on your list humility it says that we are in verse 12 to be people of have a heart of compassion kindness and humility so let's talk about humility for a minute And what that is, and it's it's pretty simple to remember that you could not become a Christian until you admitted you couldn't save yourself. It's If you are a true born-again Christian, and that's the only way you get into the family of God is being reborn. You have to have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you're counting on signing a piece of paper or walking down a, a magical aisle, then you're not saved. There's not a magical prayer, and there's not a magical aisle that we walk down. It's If Jesus is not your Lord now, if He's not affecting you today, then you need to ask, God, am I even truly saved? And you need to come to a place to be saved in order to say, I, I need a Savior. I mean, if we're saved, it implies saved from what? You're drowning. You're in a, a pool of life and you're drowning in sin and brokenness. That's why you need to be saved. Because we can't fix the problem on our own. So we need a Savior. And when we're saved, we're saved because we admit in humility that we can't save ourselves. We're not even close. It's not like we just need a little bit of boost. Like, Lord, just I'm, I'm really close to getting into heaven. Maybe just push me. From the back a little bit, or pick me up and throw me a few feet no it 's you 're across the universe from heaven in your sin, and i and i 'm the same way that 's what humility is, and we need to continue that spirit of humility after we 're saved it 's not like we get saved in humility, but then we don 't then that product disappears from our life because we need to understand. We still have the potential in us to be doing all the mistakes and dumb things that we used to do. So humility is realizing that we're still sinners, that we're still imperfect, and we still make mistakes. And we still think, say things that are wrong, and we still think things that are wrong, and we're still imperfect. Humility says, I've got the potential in myself to, to be doing what that person is doing in the family of God. That's what humility is. Humility is looking at our brothers and sisters in Christ and saying, the things that I see in you that are imperfect, that they're latent inside of me as well. And I need to be held by God to be Christ-like. So our default position is still that we realize that we're imperfect and we need to have the power of God and God's at work. In ourselves, and he's at work in our brothers and sisters, in the family of God, God's in the business of changing people in our family. we should allow God to change people. I don't like it when people meet somebody and say, "I remember you know you you are they they lock somebody in to who they were when they were in their twenties as a Christian, we should never do that. you know somehow if a person gets saved, it's like well, we." We know that now that you got saved, it's okay for you to forget your past, but a lot of people struggle because they, people know how they acted after they got saved. So let's allow God to change people after they get saved, is what I'm, and expect it. I, we should come to church saying, I see God's that worked in your life, and that doesn't surprise me at all. That's what God does. If God, in fact, is, if God is not changing you, If you were to say, God's not doing anything in my life, again, that's a warning sign. That's that check engine light on your car. And check spiritual condition light. Because God's not doing anything in my life. And if you know you're saved and just say, God, I I need you to start doing something in my life. And you better put your pew belt on at that point because he's going to start doing something. So humility acknowledges the process of sanctification. It says, I see in my brother and sister in Christ, yes, they're imperfect. Yes, they're irritating me. Yes, they're not doing what I wish they were doing. You know, the world would be great if everybody just did what I wanted. You know, that's what kind of our default position, right? But what we say is, I see that the world's not perfect and everybody won't do what I want. Therefore, I'm realizing God's at work in them. Praise God. God's at work in them. And if we have that that spirit of humility, it will help us. It will help us be able to deal with one another with patience and all these other traits. Uh, Humility says, again, that we um, also realize it's not all about us. I mean, when Jesus said... um, that or Philippians two talks a lot about Jesus humbling himself. And it was all about Jesus in Philippians chapter two and verse eight. It says that we need to have the attitude that Jesus had that although he was God, he did not he did not um, stay in heaven. But instead, he was found in appearance as a man and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ in humility stepped out of heaven, robed himself in the nature of a man, sacrificed himself on a cross to pay for your sins because he had no sin in his own life. And he was humbled. He was serving. He was a person who expressed humility, although he was divine. And so therefore, we should be people of service. Our humility should cause us to want to be Christ-like and want to serve other people as well. We should have a gratitude for our salvation that compels all these traits in us, including uh, humility and service, compassion and kindness, and then also number four, gentleness. Gentleness. We're to be gentle people, and then we're commanded to be gentle. And that's a little bit confusing because it sounds something like kindness we can kind of go well and what's the difference between gentleness and kindness and there is a difference or they wouldn't be listed under two different words obviously there must be a difference gentleness begins and is grounded in the concept that you every person in the family of God and every person as Kevin stated that God ever made is created in the image of God and is therefore valuable to God And so every person deserves to be treated with respect. In the family of God, it is vital that we treat one another with respect. And that's the foundation of gentleness. And gentleness is um, contrasted by looking at its opposite trait, which is harshness. So oftentimes, if you want to think about a word, think about the opposite of it. The opposite of gentleness is harshness. And the, the picture of being gentle is pictured by how a mother treats an infant. And just the other day, uh, when Lacey Hamilton was born, uh, Noel and I went over to see Brad and Ashley and Lacey and just to you know, pray with them. And, and we took them a meal. And um, she was probably maybe a little over a week old. I'm looking for Brad. Where's Brad? Did he go to the store? All right. Oh, he's back with the kids, isn't he? That's right. I forget. All right. That's good. So we can talk about it. So uh, so Brad, uh, it was over there, and um, I think it was Lacey that said, uh, I mean, uh, Ashley that said, hey, do you want to hold Lacey? And I knew she was going to ask me, and I already decided no. I, I said no. I don't want to because I'm afraid I'll drop her and break her. And, you know, it's been a long time since I held a baby. And so it's kind of, it's really scary. I mean, but it used to be you know it was no big deal, but after about twenty five years of not holding a baby i didn't want to do it, but i know I knew Noel was going to want to hold Lacey, and so of course she did and as I was watching the 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 hand off of Lacey from Ashley to Noel, I saw a picture of gentleness, and what it, it looked like was um, they were careful, they supported her her mind, or her brain, so that there wouldn't be any damage to her head. Um, they were intentional. They were slow. They were um, speaking softly. I mean, it was a picture of gentleness. And then I remembered in the Scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, where the Apostle Paul was describing how he treats people in the family of God in the church. And he he says... But we proved to be gentle among you, talking to the people in that local church, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. So the picture of gentleness is something, again, we're commanded to be gentle with one another. And it looks like uh, mothers caring for their infants. And it makes life better when we're gentle. That's why uh, there's some really great verses of Scripture in Proverbs, I, about being gentle, one of the great verses is Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. It says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I was also reminded in my as I was preparing, this, one of the, my favorite, all, I love the story in 1 Kings chapter 19 of Elijah being told by Jezebel that she's going to kill him. If you don't know the story, read 1 Kings chapter 19, and Elijah became greatly, it's, it's a great story because you see the humanity of this great man of God, and he, in fear and depression, he runs away from Jezebel, he runs all the way down to, to Mount Sinai, really, to the mountain of God, and, and he says, God, I'm the last one left, and he's complaining toward God about his plight in life, and the Bible says that God passed by Elijah in a strong wind that blew the stones off the mountain, but he was not in the wind. God was not in the wind. And then it says there was a mighty earthquake and rocks fell around Elijah, but God was not in the earthquake. And there was a supernatural fire, but God was not in the fire. And then it says in 1 Kings 19 that the Bible says that then God spoke in a gentle, blowing wind to Elijah. And so God's voice was a gentle voice. And I think that's that's true today. Most times when God speaks to you, it's a gentle whisper. And the Lord himself, uh, he said that he was a gentle person. In Matthew chapter 11, he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble. And you'll find rest for your souls. So we are called and demanded to be like the Lord. He said, follow me. And he said, he's gentle. So we have to be gentle as well. And we have to be patient. This is this is the fifth trait. This is uh, patience that uh, is from God. And what is patience? If I asked you to define what patience is, you know, it, you would maybe have to think about it. But patience is not acting as quickly as you could. Act on something and still be right. In other words, patience is delayed acting. And it really is defined well by the term in the Old Testament that defines God as patient and using the word long-suffering. Patience is taking the normal human reaction, what is normal to human beings, and then adding more time to that. Because if you just do what's normal, that's not being patient. Because normal is not patient. God is patient. The lost world, the the unsaved world is not patient. God is patient. And so in the secular world, if you're supposed to give somebody one chance, we give them more than one chance. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if if God uh, is somebody, if someone forces you to go one mile, then you need to go two with them. And the Bible is replete with scripture all throughout the scripture that says that God is patient, he is long suffering and he does not treat us according to our sin, to which we say, praise God. The scriptures say God is slow to anger. He is rich in mercy. And I thank God for that. And if you wanted to um, search, I, 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 let me just give you if if you're taking notes and you want to follow up and I would encourage you to do this. I caught sitting under the tree. Go sit under the tree and read Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 8. Exodus 34, 5 through 8. Luke 13, 6 through 9. 2 Peter 3, 9. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 16. Great verses in the Bible, but I did want to share one with you on the screen. It's again one of the great stories of the Bible. is the story of Jonah... One of my all-time favorite books of the Bible, and I think we're going to go through Jonah in the coming um, months ahead after we walk through the book of Philippians. We're heading toward a study in Philippians because we're moving toward getting into our book studies. And I like to go through books, and I want to go through Philippians and then probably Jonah. Jonah was, he was cray-cray. Jonah was a preacher who had the greatest uh, revival of all times, and he got mad about it. Because the people he was preaching to, he hated them with all his guts. He was prejudiced. He was he was embedded into his national pride as a Jew, and he was sent to preach to people he hated, and they did exactly what preachers are supposed to love, and that is they repented and came to saving knowledge of God. And, and here's Jonah's re- response. He got angry about it. It said it greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to foresaw this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew who you were, God. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, that you're slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. So although Jonah was he was a terrible example of a family member because what he failed to understand was that God was being patient with him. But it's a, it's a beautiful picture of the, the human nature that remains in many of us when we're not patient with other people when God is patient with us. And so today, one of the things you could pray in our, our time of decision would be, God, help me to treat others the way you treat me. Help me to be patient the way you are patient with me. Because it's not right when you treat me one way, God, and I treat other people in a completely different way. And then as we um, disobey God and we sin against God, God is still compassionate with us. He bears with us. We were just praying with the deacons in the room back here about that fact. Uh, that God doesn't, that He is patient with us and doesn't treat us according to our sin. He bears with us, which is what Colossians 3.13 says, and bearing with one another, that word bearing with one another means that we are to bear with one another over a long period of time and, and period of endurance. It's interesting that verse 8 says to put aside, verse 12 says to put on, and verse 13 says put up. we got to put up with one another. There's a bridge between patience and, and forgiveness built on the idea of Bearing with one another, great endurance. And this brings us to uh, this critical trait of forgiveness, number six. Forgiveness means forgiving with grace, which is unconditional forgiveness. Let me let me tell you what the Greek word for grace is, karis. Let me tell you what the word for the Greek word for forgiveness, kharis amai, kharis amai, karis and karis amai. And I tell you that aloud for a reason. You should be able to hear that forgiveness is, is the root of grace. And grace is what drives forgiveness. Karis and karisimai. In other words, you can't forgive somebody conditionally. You have to forgive with grace, which is unconditional forgiveness. Which means you forgive even before they come and speak to you, because that's how God forgives you. When you came to Christ, God forgives you past, present, and future sins. That's why you're justified, placed into Christ. Otherwise, And that's also why you can't lose your salvation. Praise God. And so this is a huge problem for many believers, because it, we, it's very difficult for us to forgive. And multiple people have come to me and, and, and said, you know, if, These are active Christians in the church serving and doing all those kinds of things. And they say, I can't forgive people, in particular, one person in my family. You know, somebody has hurt me. I can't forgive them. How can I forgive them? And the answer, and this is worth coming to church for right here today. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, how, Lord, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. We forgive by the power of forgiveness that we've received, period. That's a sit-under-the-tree verse. Go and sit under the tree, in the shade, and read Colossians 3.13 until it changes your life. The Bible says that you are an enemy of God. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Our back was turned to God. And he forgave us. And so all of this has to be done out of love. And it says in in this next verse, beyond all these things, put on love because it's the perfect bond of unity. And we're going to talk more about verse 14 next time. But today, let me just... End the sermon by saying that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves you. He loved you personally, not because you're a human being, but because of who you are. And we're to put on the bond of that love and unity in this family. And so the question I want to close with today is, is there anyone here today that wants to join the family of God? And I'm going to ask us to bow in prayer. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to be saved right now if you're lost. If you are not in the family of God because you are trusting in your self-righteousness, then today you can be saved. And God is inviting you into his family right now. And that would come through a simple prayer. It would start by acknowledging, just saying, God, I know that I need a savior. I'm convicted of sin and brokenness in my life, God. And I see that Jesus came to die on the cross for my sins. If you want to be saved right now, if you will, in the silence of your heart, confess Jesus as Lord. The divine son of God who humbled himself became obedient to death on the cross for you. To take away your sin. You confess Him as your Savior and Lord. Receive Him into your life and release control of your life into His hands. Tell Him, Lord Jesus, I will follow you. Save me. Forgive me of my sins. Thank you for letting me come into your family. Now help me to live by these traits that you're calling us to live by. We hope this message will help you in your spiritual walk and growth. For more about Ridgecrest, please visit us on the web at www.rbc-tuscaloosa.com. Have a great day, and God bless.